0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Braincast. Professor Louise Sapel is a remarkable biochemist and neuroscience researcher. She currently runs a research group that focuses on protein misfolding and self-assembly in neurodegenerative diseases. Today I was lucky enough to host her onto Braincast to hear her thoughts on dementia and creativity, the most promising therapies for Alzheimer's disease and how to prepare for a PhD interview. If you're a student at Sussex and you would like us to feature a particular member of the Department of Neuroscience, or if you have any burning questions that you would like us to ask, then send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter or email. The links to which can be found in the description below. Louise, welcome to Braincast. So, I saw a paper recently reporting a connection between creativity and frontotemporal dementia but this connection was not observed in those with Alzheimer's disease. Why is this the case?
1: So I think that's quite a difficult question to answer, but I think I've got some ideas why, about why it might be. So the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease are actually very different from frontal temporal dementia. And one of the symptoms of frontal temporal dementia is, is a um, some disinhibition. So people tend to be quite vocal. They can often be, Uh, disinhibited so they'll say things that you wouldn't normally say and I wonder if this might be a contribution to the fact that that leads to some creativity because often people suggest that we don't use all of our brain and so Mm -hmm. maybe it's it's that in um, people with frontal temporal dementia they maybe have the ability to use some of the parts of the brain that they wouldn't normally do whereas in Alzheimer's disease it really is mainly a loss of memory which is uh, progressive.
0: So, is this suppression or loss of activity in one part of the brain associated with the deposition of amyloid, the very protein that your lab studies?
1: Yes. So, um, in um, a huge number of neurodegenerative diseases, including frontal temporal dementia, you get deposits of misfolded protein. So, one of the confusing things um, about the word amyloid is that in Alzheimer's disease, there's a protein called amyloid beta but amyloid actually is uh, defined as any protein that can form um, abnormal um, misfolded aggregates. So actually tau forms um, amyloid and in frontal temporal dementia, um, in some types of frontal temporal dementia, you get the deposition of tau. And so um, in general, um, the deposition of protein found in the brain correlates reasonably well, particularly with tau, with um, the severity of the disease and also the areas of the brain that are affected often correlate with um, the symptoms that that one sees.
0: What techniques can be used to study amyloid?
1: Well, in my lab we're quite interested in the proteins themselves and why they misfold. So we use lots of um, techniques that allow us to look at the changing structure of the protein Um, but the other thing that's really important of course is what's actually happening in a human Um, and in order to do that we generally use um, tissue cultured cells or um, primary neurons to try and understand how the proteins uh, behave in um, a more cellular environment so to try and understand what's actually going on in something that looks a bit more like a human I think the idea really is that we what we want to try and do is to understand how the proteins work by themselves, and then to understand how they work in the context of a cellular environment. And then, of course, what we'd really want to do is understand what's actually going on in a human. So um, obviously we can't, well, we don't do that in living humans, although um, <clears throat> MRI is a possible um, technique for looking at um, abnormal protein deposition. Um, but it's not very high resolution so um, we also use post-mortem tissue to try and um, look at what the sort of hallmarks would be and whereabouts the um, deposition occurs
0: okay so before we come on to your own research i want to take you back to your childhood and find out where your curiosity in neuroscience comes from did you enjoy science at school
1: yeah i really loved science at school and actually. I, I think I've said before that I wasn't actually all that brilliant at school, I, I didn't particularly excel um, in English for example, um, but I was okay at maths and science and I guess I, I found an area where I, I quite enjoyed it and I was reasonably good at it but not you know stellar or anything. Um, and the, the interesting in neuroscience I'm not sure about but I think um, all of the rest of my family and. Uh, psychologists Mm. Um, so we all have that sort of shared interest in how the brain works although we've sort of approached it in quite different ways because I became a biochemist and they all became psychologists so that's quite a big difference between us and then we've almost sort of converged um, around the sort of neuroscience area.
0: After finishing school, I gather you ended up going to the University of Nottingham. You graduated in 1992 with a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and Genetics. You then took up a BBSRC funded PhD in Molecular Biophysics at the University of Oxford. What drew you to Molecular Biophysics?
1: Um, I think in a way it was a little bit of an accident. So I had been um, interested, I'd actually done my research project at Nottingham um, with the lab of John Mayer who actually worked on um, prion diseases. Um, So I got a bit of an interest then in prion diseases and sort of neurodegeneration in general. Uh, But I ended up going to um, Oxford and doing something completely different and completely out of my comfort zone. So it was I mean basically it was a lab where they did protein crystallography so that all the people who were there were sort of from a physics background or a biophysics background so it was really out of my comfort zone but I was really interested in um, amyloid and so what we worked on was the structure of amyloid so it's a sort of slightly odd and circuitous pathway to uh, being in neuroscience now whereas I really was Sort of a biophysicist mm-hmm. and we did lots of techniques um that involved um x-ray diffraction so it sort of fitted into what other people were doing there to try and understand what the structure of the amyloid fibril actually was
0: what i'm so interested in is you mentioned earlier that you you struggled academically in your young years but then you ended up going to a, a leading university and getting a fully funded phd i mean is was that just down to to hard work or Um,
1: I think, I think maybe, I mean, the the use of the word struggle maybe is exaggerating a bit. I've used that word, it's not that you've brought that up. But I think, um, you know, I was okay academically, but I wasn't brilliant. And there were loads of people better than me. And I do have a bit of a tendency to sort of compare myself to other people and think other people are way better. I still do Mm. that. So, you know, I think it's just part of my personality. Um, And I think it was really a sort of, Perseverance um, and a determination, um, and also a lot, lot of luck. So I went to an interview with the supervisor at Oxford, and it just seemed like it worked. Um, You know, actually, and also he took um, a huge risk on bringing me in, given that I didn't have any sort of structural biology background Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, So it was a huge risk, but somehow it worked out, and and um, I'm very thankful for that. You know, starting my scientific career
0: what advice would you give to those who are looking to apply to competitive fully funded phds i mean what should be prioritized uh, in the personal statement and how should one prepare for the, the interview um
1: i think that um enthusiasm and motivation go a really really long way so um preparing for your interview by reading the the um, papers of the person you're interviewing with is absolutely essential. Of course everybody loves to talk about their own work and if you arrive at an interview and say, oh I really love this paper and I thought that this was really interesting and then when they say to you well, what would you do if you um, were to try and tackle this problem and you have some good ideas about it, then I think that that is a really important thing. So you know the first step is obviously doing pretty well um, in your degree. Uh, But the next step really is is sort of finding a way to communicate your enthusiasm and your excitement about the project. Um, And that sort of leads on to my next point is actually doing a PhD is really, really hard. And there are lots of ups and downs and some, you know, setbacks and difficulties. And I think resilience is essential and actually to get you through those sort of difficult patches being really passionate and interested in your research problem Mm -hmm. is really essential. So choosing really, really carefully. And the final thing I would say is uh, don't forget that you're interviewing them as well as them interviewing Mm -hmm. you. So, you know, finding yourself in an environment where it's supportive, that you're gonna get the right help and training that you need is really important um, to be able to get you through those difficult times. I think going and doing a PhD in a group where um, there's less support. Um, is is going to be a big struggle. So I would say try and find some way you're going to be happy.
0: Fantastic. That that's fantastic advice. I'm sure lots of people listening would would be very glad to to hear all of that. After graduating from the University of Oxford in 1995, you moved to the University of Toronto as a postdoc. What work were you doing there?
1: So um, when I was doing my PhD, I was working sort of generally on amyloid, and then. Um, I went to the University of Toronto to work more specifically on Alzheimer's disease. So the lab there had just um, discovered the presenilin proteins um, along with another group. Um, so they uh, found that there's a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease that um, is caused by a mutation in the presenilin proteins, which we now know are um, the secretases, gamma secretase, which cleaves um, at, Amyloid precursor protein into amyloid beta. Um, and um, so it was quite an exciting time. And mm-hmm. I met the, the supervisor at a conference in my first year of my PhD. And it just, you know, the, the combination of um, an exciting project using my skills in mm-hmm. um, structural biology and also um, the possibility of going to a new country and and doing that was, was probably what drove the whole thing. It was really uh, an interesting place, place to be. It was freezing in the winter, like <laughs> freezing. So you couldn't go out with wet hair because it would turn into icicles. <laughs> uh, so um, I lasted about 18 months um, and I look back on it as an amazing, really informative time, yeah. uh, but I can't oh. say it wasn't without its struggles at the time. So.
0: So between 1997 and 2003, you're at the University of Cambridge and then you moved to the University of Sussex. Out of all the universities you've been to, it seems that you've stayed at Sussex the longest. How come?
1: Um, I think um, I think it probably is most to do with family. So when um, I moved here, um, I had a one-year-old daughter Um, I then had a son a year later Um, and I think you know being able to find a place where you can settle, where you can stay, being an academic can be really difficult particularly if you change job every three or four years Um, and I think being um, in one place is uh, important to find that you know possibility Um, and also I found myself to very happy at Sussex. So, it you know, it's been a really nice environment to have the freedom to do the research that I'm interested in doing. Um, You know, the the students here are are great. Uh, So many of them are enthusiastic, particularly, you know, obviously I think my research is the most important and interesting (laughs) thing ever. Um, And I get some, you know, one of my favourite things about teaching at Sussex is the project students and, and um, you know, working with them. I always feel that that's the most exciting bit, you know. it All the rest of the teaching is fun, but that's the best bit. Yeah. Um, so trying to infuse other people to sort of persuade them that doing research on Alzheimer's disease is, you know, there's nothing better, um, mm. is good fun. And so, I think just altogether, it's been a really nice place to be, and obviously. No
0: one ever wants to leave Brighton, so no. it's one things, <laughs> Everyone keeps it? coming back, it seems. I will see CVs and they, yeah. they were here before and, and now they're back again. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's no better. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so I know we touched on this a bit earlier, but what projects do you have ongoing at the moment in your lab?
1: Well, I suppose there are a lot of projects, so my group, um, there are about 10 people, they're all doing slightly different things. But I think the thing that brings them all together is the focus on proteins. So we're interested in protein structure and function. And so um, specifically, we focus on Alzheimer's disease. And so we're interested in the three main proteins that are involved in Alzheimer's. So they're amyloid beta tau and apolipoprotein E. So all of those aspects, we're sort of trying to piece together um, how they are Um, contributing, influencing one another and um, causing Alzheimer's disease and so how how the progression works really. Um, And we work on structural biology and cell biology, um, you know, some synaptic vesicle trafficking, so some proper neuroscience um, in collaboration with people here like Kevin Starras. Um, And I used to work on materials, so sort of thinking about how you might use amyloid as a material uh, for its material properties, but that um, in the last few years has sort of gone by the wayside. So the focus really is on neurodegenerative diseases at the moment.
0: Okay, and they, I hear you're working with a company who are developing a drug to target Tau?
1: Yes, that's right. So that's been really exciting. So we've worked with this company called TauRx for about mm, seven years now, um, and they have a compound that's in phase three clinical trials. So they found out, find out the um, results uh, this year. So that's really exciting exciting, Um, and what we were employed to do was to try and understand how the drug works. So what's interesting that I haven't really realized in terms of pharmacology is that there are so many drugs that have been developed and they work but nobody quite knows how. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the aim of our our, um, side of the work is really academic and to try and understand what the mechanism of action is of this drug. Um, So that's been really fun and it's really meant that we have got um, research into tau really off the ground. So one of the things that we did, which has been, I think, a real contribution is to find a model system that forms paired helical filaments, which would have formed in Alzheimer's brain, but to make those in vitro. So as I said sort of at the beginning, you know, trying to understand a disease is quite difficult um, if you are to try and do it in a human system so what you have to do is to sort of narrow it down and isolate the different components and try and understand them individually before you try to put it all back together and understand how it works in a, in, in a physiological environment.
0: And if I may ask, what would you say are the most promising drug therapies for Alzheimer's disease?
1: There was one that was, um, was approved by the FDA recently, which is an antibody. Uh, I can never say its name but it's called something like adecugnubibab, something <laughs> like that. Uh, I can see it written down but I can't yeah. say it, I anyone can. Um, but it hasn't had great response um, and it isn't fantastic. One of the things I think is really exciting at the moment is the development of gene silencing um, methods. Um, and so for Huntington's disease, particularly, uh, which obviously is a genetic disease, um, they are really pioneering gene silencing methods to, to reduce the amount of Huntington protein that's produced, so to down-regulate the gene expression. Um, and that seems to be having a good effect. So that might be something um, that could work for some of these genetic diseases. Because, of course, what you want to do is not to completely uh, get rid of the protein because you'll get a loss of function. You mm-hmm. want to reduce it so that you reduce the likelihood of uh, protein responding and aggregation. Um, so that looks really promising. Really promising. Um, and, yeah, so that's really good.
0: Okay, so if you could upgrade any part of your brain, what would you choose?
1: I feel like vision would be an amazing thing to have. I sort of struggle with my vision, and I think being able to, you know, sort of, I'm maybe inspired by the cat's picture behind me, but the the possibility of being able to, you know, see better—I see in higher resolution. How about that?
0: That's yeah.
1: Improve my vision so that I can actually see (laughs) the structure of things.
0: And my final question is: What's your dream experiment?
1: I think one of the things that we often miss in our work is that physiologically. Relevance. So particularly in structural biology, you often have very high concentrations of protein, they're isolated, they're in a really, you know, they're in a um, pure sample, etc. Et yeah. So I think one of the things that I think it would be really lovely to do would be to try and recreate a physiological environment and then see what the proteins are doing in that environment. And we're sort of getting some way towards that now because um, the field has, relatively recently discovered these things that are called stress granules, which essentially are non-membrane uh, bound organelles. So they're sort of little blobs of jelly in the cell that seem to do stuff. Uh, they have proteins and they have an RNA in them. Um, and it seems that this uh, environment might be a precursor to amyloid fibril formation. Um, and so these are sort of active environments where all sorts of processes go on but also Uh, potentially are a seed for amyloid um, assembly so what we're trying to do is to recreate these sort of uh, gel-like environments they're phase separated environments in which you can mix various components like proteins and carbohydrates and RNA and so on together and then try and look at what the proteins are doing in that environment.
0: Louise thank you so much for coming on to Braincast it's been a pleasure having you.